Take your Bibles and and turn to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. This is the passage that Pastor Rick read for us just a little while ago. Uh, As we jump back into this after being away from it for a few weeks, I want to take just a moment to remind you of what's happening in the really the greater context of the book as a whole. We're walking through verse by verse, chapter by chapter, all the way through the book. Paul started in in chapter 1 by introducing himself, and he gave us the theme of the book as a whole. So chapter 1, verses 16 through 17, read like this, and read it out loud with me. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And that is our theme really for the whole book as we work through the book of Romans. In chapter 1, verse 18, so the verse following what we just read, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, Paul is showing the innate sinfulness of man. It's in every single living human being. We are all born sinners. This is the condemnation part of the book. Why would a person need a Savior? What is it that makes a Savior necessary? Is there anything that I can do to save myself? These are all things that Paul's talking about as we get through this this section of Scripture. To the moralist, there is no reason for a Savior because their morality is the saving power that is at work to provide them with salvation, or so they think. And Paul's blowing that out of the water. As we continue looking at this section of Scripture, we're going to find that there is no one who is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one, to quote in chapter 3. So this is the theme of of chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, where we find ourselves right now, okay? Right in the middle of that. One of the greatest injustices that can ever happen to a person is that they are not shown the reality of their damning sin. That sin is going to lead to eternal death. They deserve to hear the truth of their condemnation. In fact, I would argue that it is hatred to not be honest about sin. We had a youth pastor here years ago who made the comment, how much do you have to hate a person to not show them the grace and the love and the forgiveness and forgiveness that's offered in our God. Compassion and love demands honesty about what's going to condemn a person. And that's what Paul's doing. He's being openly yet compassionately honest in this. My hope is that as we work through this book, we're building this case for faith. We want to study God's word so that our study of God's living word is going to impact us to life-changing faith. But you can't get to life-changing faith until you understand the depravity of your sin. That's where Paul starts off, and that's where we're in the middle of right now. Earlier, we uh, read our passage for today, but I want to read it again, just so we can soak it in before we go to dissect it, okay? So Romans chapter 2, start reading with me in your Bibles in verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent, because you were instructed from the law... And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? 
You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. By the way, he's speaking very specifically here to Jews, okay? Very specifically. Picking it up here as we continue. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Let's pray. Father, I ask that in these moments you lead and guide our thoughts that, Father, then our thoughts lead to corrective action in our life, whether that's entering into a relationship with you for the first time, or maybe that's growing in sanctification and holiness. Father, whatever that is, I pray that today's your word exposes to us the true state of where we're at, but where you're calling us to go. We love you, Father, but we only love you because you first loved us. You showed that love by sending Jesus to die in our place. It's in his holy and precious name I pray, amen. The Titanic is a, um, is a tragedy that we all know about. It happened back in 1909. It's a long time ago, because I think about Titanic, I think maybe mid-1900s or whatever, but no, it was really, really early in the 1900s. Um, it's a tragedy that honestly didn't have to be as much of a tragedy as it was for one major reason, and that is that people had a sense of security in the unsinkable nature of the ship. But that sense of security turned out to be unrealistic. We see this in the, the sense of security in a couple of ways. Uh, first of all, when, when they were building the boat, they didn't put enough lifeboats on the Titanic because why would you need a lifeboat on an unsinkable ship? So instead of putting a lifeboat in a certain place, they put something else in that place. Now there were lifeboats, yes, but not nearly enough. But then secondly, you see this sense of security even in the way that when the ship hit the iceberg, people didn't begin immediately getting into the lifeboats that they had. They continued to party and, and think, okay, well, I got time. This, this, this ship is just fine. There's no way it's ever going to sink, right? Well, we know the real story. We know that it doesn't take long at all. And in fact, in just a matter of a few hours, the Titanic had sunk. The tragedy of the Titanic lies as much in the false sense of security as it does in the impact itself. And Paul, in this passage, is directing his attention to the Jews in Rome with what he has to say in these verses. They've got a false sense of security. So he's calling them out on it. He's calling them to gospel centrality. Uh, John MacArthur uses this, this analogy to explain what's happening here. He says, If you had spent your life savings to purchase an insurance policy to protect you and your wife and your family, and someone came to you and said, Look, i got to tell you something. Um, no such tragedy exists. Excuse me. No such company exists. That whole thing is a fraud. Well, you wouldn't say to the man, Leave me alone, will you? I'm happy in my false security. I was content till you got here. Now you've messed up everything. No. You'd thank the man, and you would say, show me the evidence. And if the man was right, you'd be so deeply grateful because then you could pursue a true security. MacArthur says that's essentially what Paul's doing. 
He's exploding the myth of Jewish false security in order that they may be brought to the point of true and genuine security. Now, my hope is that here today, if there's anybody with a false sense of eternal security, that today it will be cleared up for you where your foundation lies. So that's my hope and prayer as I've prepared for today. There's three different types of security that's found in this passage. Um, There's security in heritage, there is security in knowledge, and there's security in action. So let's talk first about false security in heritage. The beginning of verse 17, it says, but if you call yourself a Jew, then you jump to the end of verse 17, and it says, and boast in God. So, but you call yourself a Jew and boast in God. Now, the Jewish people prided themselves on being God's chosen people. They're proud of the fact that they are of the line of of Abraham, that they have forefathers of faith, such as Abraham and Moses and David and so many more. Simply because they belonged to the Jewish people, they were God's people. Many of the religious leaders even taught that if your bloodline was pure Jewish, that there is no way that you could ever not be a part of the kingdom of God. No way whatsoever. A person in a church setting in today's culture might would say, well, you know what? That doesn't apply to me. This passage doesn't apply to me because I'm not a Jew. But think for a moment. How might you feel some sort of false, eternal security simply because of the heritage that you get from your family members? And here's how it might go. It might be something like, my granddaddy was a strong believer, or my daddy or my mommy were strong Christians. Um, I've got faith. I, I attend church because my family's always done it. I... There's certain rights or certain privileges that come to me because my family has always been a part of this church or a church. Maybe you were raised in a, in a religious family or in a religious tradition in which you went through infant baptism and or confirmation when you were a baby or when you were a child. Um, maybe your parents served on a committee of, of some sorts and you went to church all the time because they went to church all the time. And because of all of that, or, or part of that, you feel like God is somehow obligated to you. So when you reach heaven one day, there's so many heaven jokes of St. Peter waiting at the gate. But when you get to heaven, why are they going to let you in? Well, because I did this, and I did that, and I was a part of this, and I was a part of that. Look, for that, look at all the good things that I did. The sad reality, though, is that Jesus was very, very clear That your answer is anything besides, I am here because of what Jesus has done for me on the cross, then your answer doesn't cut it. Heritage is no security at all. Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 8 that on the day of judgment, there would be Jews who would be thrown into hell for their unrepentance, while there are strangers or Gentiles who would be welcomed in for their faith. There's going to be church people who attended church their whole lives who are going to be thrown into hell for their unrepentance. Heritage is a false security because a right standing with God is never, ever found in tradition or family. It's found in the person and work of Jesus Christ and his atoning death on the cross. That's the only place that it's found. Next, we see false security in knowledge. So the Jews not only had false security in their heritage, here's who I am, here's what they also said. They also had a false security in what they knew, 
in the learning that they had, the instruction, the education that they had. In the middle of verse 17, Paul talks about those who would rely on the law. Verse 18, you find those who know his will and approve what is excellent because you, you were instructed from the law. The Jews in Rome believed that they believed in the law, and they believed that because they had the law and the law was from God, that they were okay. So no, no need for anything else. I've got all of this, and I don't need anything else. <clears throat> Middle of verse 17, you find the word rely. They relied on the law. When you rely on something, you are resting in something. You find comfort in it. You find trust in it. So they were relying on the law of God. Verse 18 goes even deeper in this explaining security and knowledge. He says, you know his will, you, so you know God's will. You approve what's excellent. In other words, you say, good job to what the good things, right? Yes, that's right, because you were instructed from the law. And you do these things because you're instructed from the law. To know the will of someone means that you understand their desires and their plans. God clearly revealed his desire and his plan through his law. And the Old Testament law was their security. I know God's desires. I know God's plan because I know God's law. And I have a security that I find in that. So if I adhere to the law, then I'm good. If I don't adhere to it, then I'm not a true follower of God. It's this false security of Judaism and of knowledge as a replacement for the true gospel of, of Jesus Christ. Paul reminds the Believers there in Rome, he says that you've been instructed from the law. From the time you were very, very young in Judaism, you were instructed, you were taught from the law of God. Um, we have a group that's heading to Israel here uh, next week. So not this week, but next week. And I'll never forget three years ago when we were there. Um, there's a lot of memories and experiences that stick with you as you go through and you experience a place like Israel, but there's one in particular that I, I know without a doubt I will never, ever forget. We walked into a synagogue, a place of teaching, and there's multiple benches everywhere, and it's two-person benches. It's not, you can't, you can't get any more than two people on these benches. And as we walked in, I, I realized that there is this dad, very clearly orthodox Jewish dad, who is training his young son. They've got the Old Testament law open in front of them, and he is pointing it out, and he is training his son in the law. And this is a very young boy, both of them dressed in very orthodox Jewish garb, and, and, and there's a cool thing that's taking place there. And I think, man, this is awesome. But then the more I thought about it, the more I realized that that man is a part of a belief system in the orthodox Jewish culture where his security was in his knowledge of the law rather than his security being in the fulfillment of the law. What did Jesus say? He said, I have not come to abolish the law, but to what? Fulfill it. He was the fulfillment of the law. And what Paul is telling the Jewish people here in Rome is you've got this comfort in what you know, this comfort in your training, this comfort in what you've experienced your whole life. But it's never gone from a head knowledge to a heart knowledge. You know, I think that oftentimes the difference between heaven and hell is only 18 inches. 
the head is about 18 inches from the heart. And you know, we can know a whole lot about God. We can know a lot of facts about Scripture, and it never, ever permeate our hearts. And that's what Paul is confronting here. Romans chapter 9, verse 31. Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. And they went after this with everything inside of them. They pursued it. The the New King James Version says, but Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. They've missed it. That's what he's saying. If your eternal security is tied up in how much you know rather than in the person and work of Jesus, then you are to be pitied because you still stand condemned before a holy God whose only requirement for salvation is simple faith in Jesus. So it could be that we have false security in heritage. It could be that we have false security in knowledge. And we can also have false security in action. False security in action. I'm going to read verses 19 through 24, so read along in your Bible with me. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. You can just read this and you can, you can imagine um, kind of the boastfulness of this, the things that people might be saying. Hey, listen, I don't just keep the law, right? I teach the law. Um, people who don't understand, well, I'm the one who brings them to understanding. It could be said, I, I, I know the Ten Commandments, I preach the Ten Commandments, I live every single one of them, I don't break them. This boastfulness. Just in verse 19, there's, there's four different statements of superiority. There's the guide to the blind, the light to those in darkness, instructor of the foolish, teacher of children. And when those are your qualifications, it's really hard not to boastfully look at what you do as your basis for a right standing with God. I do this so God is happy with me. The problem is that that is an augmented sense of reality when it comes to God's standard for life. Because y'all, let's be honest here for just a moment. Um, Have you ever thought about how hopelessly incapable you are of living up to God's perfect standard apart from Christ? If we take just a few of the Ten Commandments, um, and these are the commandments that God put out there as a baseline for his people to obey, if we take a few of those Ten Commandments and we try to to figure out, okay, how am I doing based on these? We're still going to fall way short. J.D. Greer, a couple of years ago, put a litmus test out there for his church when it comes to the Ten Commandments. And here's, here's part of what he said. He says, do you keep the Ten Commandments? By the way, a lot of people here would say, yeah, I keep the Ten Commandments. I've never killed, any, killed anybody or anything crazy like that. Well, let's go through a few of them. Number one, you shall have no other gods before me. So can you say, can you say, I have never put anything before God in my life? I have never loved or trusted or obeyed anything more than God. God has always been preeminent in my thoughts, affections, and actions. Worshiping him has always been the greatest passion of my life. Can you say that? Yes or no? No. All right, here's another one. Number three, you shall not take my name in vain. 
I've always held the name of God in highest respect, never uttering it carelessly, nor have I ever desecrated God's name by calling myself his follower, yet not representing him well. The way I talk, act, spend money, and drive give honor to the God whose name I attach to my life and whose bumper sticker I plaster on my car. Yes or no? I think you'd be able to say, yeah, I've done that perfectly. No. What about this one? Number five, honor your parents. I have always respected and obeyed the authorities in my life and given them honor and willing obedience, whether they were watching or not. This includes my parents, my teachers, traffic cops, and the IRS. I don't know which one gets you there, but one of those is going to get you, okay? Parents, teachers, traffic cops, IRS. Number six, you shall not kill. I've never murdered anyone. Great job. But remember what Jesus did with this commandment in the Sermon on the Mount. Because you've got to also be able to say, nor have I had hateful thoughts, nor have taken the slightest pleasure in seeing harm done to another human being. I have never wished harm on anyone, even when they really angered me. Once again, no. Can't say that. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. I've never had an inappropriate relationship with anyone outside the bonds of marriage, nor have I ever entertained sexual thoughts about someone that I'm not married to. Yes or no? You shall not steal, number eight. I've never taken anything that doesn't belong to me. This includes downloading illegal music, cheating in school, or fudging on my taxes. I have always respected the, the belongings, rights, and creations of others and been completely truthful and fair, taking only what I've earned. I'll add to that, I've never taken extra Chick-fil-A stock sauce to stock my shelves at home. And if you've done that, then boom, there you go. That's a, no, you hadn't done that either. You shall not lie. I've never bent the truth to get out of a bad situation. I've never stretched the truth to make myself look better. I've never slandered anyone. I have always told the truth in every situation regarding every person I have ever known, and I've always fully fulfilled any promises I've made. You shall not covet. I've never been greedy for something that wasn't mine, nor have I been jealous of the abilities, looks, position, or possessions of others. I've rejoiced with others in what they have, glad that they have it even when I don't. I've never complained about what God has provided for me and always been thankful and fully content with what I have and where I am in life. Yes or no? A moment ago when I read these words, do you teach others? Do you, teach your, do you not teach yourself? Do you preach against stealing? Do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? How many of us, when we're reading through that the first time, thought, no, I don't, no, I don't do that? But now it's in a little different light, isn't it? And the reason I share this with you is, is so that we can see how completely incapable we are of living the perfect holy life that God and his holiness and his perfection requires of us for a relationship with him. We can't do it. We cannot do it. The problem is that so many people try. If I can just do this or that, or if I can rely on this part of my family's faith, then that's going to be enough. And all of that is shaft in the wind that just blows away. Look at verses 25 through 29 with me. Read, read along with me. 
For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. I wanted to find a way to sum up those verses because they're they're difficult to understand. Find a way to sum up those verses in a really simple way, and here's how I did it. What's on the inside is way more important than what's on the outside. What's on the inside is way more important than what's on the outside. 1 Samuel 16 tells us that man looks on the outward appearance. But where does God look? He looks at the heart. Circumcision for the Jewish nation was an outward sign of the covenant that they had with God to be his people. Pure and undefiled in the middle of a filthy and unclean world. But it was only an outward sign. It was far more important that they obey God with their whole lives to match the outward sign of cleanliness that came from circumcision. In the New Testament church age, baptism is that outward sign. It's the outward identification of being a redeemed child of God. But if the inward lifestyle doesn't match the outward sign, then something's wrong. All right, so let's read verse 28 again, okay? And I'm going to add a couple of words here. But a Jew, a Christian, in the context of the passage here, a Jew, a Christian, is one inwardly. And circumcision, baptism, is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. Are you a Christian outwardly only? And you think I am maybe through heritage, maybe through what I know, maybe through what I do? And not also inwardly, through the sanctifying regeneration of the Holy Spirit. You know, I believe there's a lot of people in our, in our world who have a false sense of security in something. Specifically to this passage today, there's a lot of people who have a false sense of security in their religiosity. They've convinced themselves that they're safe in their heritage, or they're safe in what they know, or they're safe in what they do. In re- reality... There is no safety in those things. The only true assurance that we have for a relationship with God lies in his saving power and not our own. Salvation is a supernatural matter of the heart, not outward conformity to a set of rules, guidelines, and traditions. But I want to go back here for just a moment to a verse that we didn't talk about today. Sarah in chapter 2, verse 4. Romans chapter 2, verse 4, here's what we find. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God's will is not condemnation. God's desire is for you to, through his kindness and patience, come to him in repentance And we know the story of the prodigal son. A man had two sons. One son ran away and he wasted away all of his wealth. 
the other son stayed and, and faithfully served the dad. The prodigal returned, begging for mercy. He's driven by repentance and brokenness. And what's the dad do? He, he welcomes him back into his home. But the older son refused to come into his father's home, pointing at all of his work and his faithfulness and everything that he had done for his dad, saying, look at these things. Look at what I have done. I deserve a relationship with you because of what I have done. The sad reality of the story of the, of the prodigal son is that the older son never does come into the home. The younger son does. He comes through that repentance and that brokenness and that forgiveness from the father. But the older son stays outside the home. He assumes that his heritage and his knowledge and his action is enough. That should be enough to earn me a ride into your home, dad. If you go back and look at... Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2, you're going to see kind of a theme. Romans chapter 1 is the irreligious son, the prodigal, the one that is far from God, the one that would be deemed the sinner, okay? That's Romans chapter 1. Then you get to Romans chapter 2 and you see the older son, the religious person, the one who's got all the answers, the one who has his stuff together. Both of them stand condemned. But both of them come to God through one way, and that is through the cross of Jesus Christ. It's the only way for both the religious and the irreligious. It's the only way. I wonder today if you have come to God, no matter which side you're on there, no matter what your story, I wonder if you have come to God, the only way to come to God and that is through the cross. And if you've tried to come in any way beyond the cross, there's no safety, there's no security in that. Father, if there is anyone here today who is not your child, then would today be the day of salvation? Father, we've worked through some heavy stuff today. But Father, all of it points to the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that we could not save ourselves, that we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were still sinners, made us alive together with Christ. Father, if there's, not, if there's anyone here today who is not alive together with Christ, which would the day be the day. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.